Hello friends, how are you? My name is Colm and this is the Sober Mess podcast and you're very welcome. Today I'm joined by my good friend Tom Brosnan. Tom is an addiction specialist, a psychotherapist, teacher, personal training, published author and also has relations from down in County Kerry, so he's a, he's an avid Kerry football fan, uh, but we won't tell any of the any of the dubs that. So, Tom, how are you, man? Mm, I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Colin? I'm oh, man. I'm good today. You know, I'm good today. I went for an old C dip in the IRC, and uh, it all man. You know, I woke up today. I was just feeling a bit anxious, feeling a bit off, and uh, you know, doing my deal. You know, I get up and I have my little morning routine, and I meditate. I write down five things I'm grateful for. You know, and uh, I went down to the sea then, met two friends and went for a swim and I felt amazing after that. And it's, it's that thing, you know, you can start your day at any time, you know, just because oh, you wake up feeling a bit off or tired, you didn't sleep great or, you know, whatever the thing is that you can say, right, I can reset this day. I don't have to say, right, because I didn't wake up feeling great. I'm gonna, that's going to, you know, be the, the theme of my day, like, you know, where you, I can say, right, what can I do to reset my day and change my perspective? And I end up having a very, very nice day because of, because of them few simple steps that I took to change it. Yeah. Well, you've got the control, right? You're in charge, mm. not the kind of thought or the feeling. You're, you're, you, you're, yeah, you're in charge. You've got the power and you can do anything you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's mad. Like, my problem was always that I'm not a slow learner. I'm a quick forgetter. And I forget quickly the things that are good for me. And I always find it really hard to forget the things that are bad for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Not to fall into the, the old patterns, like that. yeah, a slow learner but a quick forgetter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that. But I suppose on our journey, it's what I don't know. It's what we become conscious of that we would rather not forget quickly. The things that we know are helpful and mm. healthy. You know, yeah. that's um, that's what's important. Like you mentioned there about how you start your day. And I do believe like if we, you know, if we win the morning, we win the day. And just like similar to you, I start the day with my gratitude list. And I just really simply keep it to three things. You know, something I've had. So thinking about the past, something I've done, accomplished, achieved, whatever. Something I've got that's here in the present, but also like, something in the future okay that i don't have yet that i'm working towards that is not kind of it's, it's almost formless it hasn't it's not in in the form but i know it's going to happen because i have that belief in myself and my abilities do you see what i mean i love that what uh, what was today's what was today's well first thing i'm always grateful for waking up okay because it's never a given like so many like i've had a lot of loss in my life right a lot of people have passed away and some of them have passed away in their sleep. So for me, I'm always grateful that I wake up and I, and I open the window, I, I open the blind and I open the window, I let some air in and I give thanks to the new day. I welcome the new day because it's never a given. So that's always the first thing that I'm grateful for. It's yeah. like, you know, for waking up. And then I think about, you know, where I've been, what I've learned, like the day before so. It's almost like I bookend my day with my gratitude and my reflection. So at the end of the day, I think about my reflections. What am I grateful? What have I learned today? And how will it help me in my journey? So I'm always kind of when I'm reflecting in the morning and doing my gratitude, I'm thinking of my reflections and thinking what I learned yesterday and then how I can kind of embed that today. Because I don't really compare myself or I don't get lost in comparing myself to anyone else. I just compare myself to who I was yesterday, making sure that I'm going to do better today than I did yesterday because I'm going to employ what I learned yesterday today you know so that's something that I carry with me and then I think about the future you know something that I'm working towards something that I'm achieving and um, I'm going away next week with my eldest daughter I have two daughters and it's a trip that we've been planning for like the last probably maybe three maybe maybe four years but we haven't been able to go because of covid and then she had some exams last year so we kind of put it off again so we get to go away next wednesday so i'm looking forward to that and having just the most amazing time yeah that's beautiful man yeah 
that's that's amazing, isn't it? And it is. It's all them simple things, isn't it? Grateful for life, grateful for good health, grateful for mm. family. You know, um, they're the important things because I think the. I think the tangible things, the materialism, you know, I remember that there was a point in my life where if we got the nice shiny shoes or the nice car or the, you know, the, 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 all the followers or the few, the money or, you know, the, the mansion on, on the, on top of the hill, then I'd be happy, you know, and, and I was really suffering inside with it when I had this belief and I was constantly trying to fix the inside with, but it's like you have a leak in the roof of your, of your sitting room and you're like, oh, I know how I'll fix this. I'll buy a new corner sofa or you have a, you know, you have a, you have a like smoke coming out of your engine in the car and you're like, oh, I know how to fix this. So I'll bring it for a car wash, you know? And it's like, it's just like trying to look for quick hit a gratification or distraction to fix the, the disconnection that's going on the inside, man. And for me, it was like that, man. It was, it was changing my perspective on life, you know, connecting with a healthy community, Connecting with like, uh, I suppose a higher power, you know, getting into nature, getting into sea dip and looking after my health and all these types of things. And it's mad. The, the universe has a great way of giving grateful people more things to be grateful for. You know, and that, that's what I found. Like, like even this morning, man, I was grateful for like a fridge full of food, you know, my health, good friends, sea dip and the sunrise, you know, my books. Um, you know, just and just and just all these really simple things, like you know, um, and that was it. Like a few years ago, I think I'll tell you, I had nothing. You know, I go to bed at night saying, "I want this, I want this, I want that," and and I feel completely empty and lost and low, and you know, just down on myself. And now I go to bed and I say, "I have, I have, I have," and. I'm a lot richer now than I was back then, not financially, not materialistically. You know, but I just feel like like spiritually and internally because it's not about the amount of things you attain it's about the amount of things you appreciate in your life you know mm. it is so how did you come to appreciate what you have within you because that's my message is that we don't need anything to have everything because we've got what we need inside us but, so how did you come to appreciate your kind of innate when well-being your innate worth when i was sitting in my apartment on my own i had a nice car loads of money in my bank account i was looking at booking holidays you know nice clothes nice shoes and all these nice things around me but on the inside i was falling apart i was dark i felt so lonely so disconnected i didn't want to live i was having panic attacks I was having anxiety attacks and I hit this internal rock bottom, you know, and this was, man, you know, this was like about three or four years without uh, any mind altering substances, you know, I was sober um, a good few years and I went down this kind of materialistic uh, hamster wheel, you know, the endeavor to mm. buy myself out of out of th- th- this inner spiritual void that I was feel- feel- feeling within me and I was trying to fill the hole with, the, with every- anything I could touch, you know, and... Uh, yeah, I was sitting in this apartment, man, and, you know, had all these nice shiny things and still felt, just felt so awful inside. And I didn't know, you know, and I remember someone described it before, you know, I felt like Brown Thomas on the outside and Tesco on the inside, you know, and that's how I felt. And, you know, I remember hearing a guy um, talking, you know, at a, at, a, at a 12-step meeting, you know, and he was speaking about the uh, emotional sobriety. You know, and I, I remember approaching him after me and saying, well, what's emotional sobriety? And uh, he said, man, it, it's about feeling okay on the inside. And I was like, mm. well, how, how, how did you go about that? You know, and, uh, you know, I had a chat with this guy, you know, he he introduced me to a few books and a few speakers, you know, The Power of Now, Awareness by Edgar, uh, sorry, Awareness by Anthony Tomello, The Power of Now, Edgar Toll, um, a few other, a few other books, and you know that 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 really helped on my journey. And I realized it's not about what the amount of stuff you can like. If you can me- if you can touch it, it won't fix you. If you can measure it, it won't fulfill you. You know, and that that was my discovery, man. That I if I can if we can see it, feel it, or pick it up, it, you know, it's not gonna fix the the inner uh, disconnection that I'm feeling. Mm. That's really nice because 
it's like what Anthony DeMello talks about as well, that there's this deeper love that comes from, that springs from this awareness. And the awareness is everything, knowing what we have inside us. That's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, a friend of mine, she was telling me about her journey, her story and, and her addiction when I kind of interviewed her for my, my radio show, which I'd love to have you on one day. It's called Glowing in the Dark. And we talk that. about people who glow through their darkness to kind of come through, grow through and break through what they have, you know, been through to get to where they are. But she talked to me about how her addiction gave her everything and yet nothing at the same time. And that really gave birth to the insight that like, wow, you know what? We don't actually need anything to have everything because it's there already. We've just mm -hmm. never kind of woke up to the fact. And when we do, it's like so profound, like we can never unsee it. Like life will never ever be the same again. It's like, you know, you talk about, you know, the AA in the rooms and I'm reminded of the work of Joseph Campbell, you know, when we leave the ordinary world and go into the special world and we come back, you know, to the ordinary world, nothing will ever be the same again because the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves and have that that appreciation, that love for ourselves, you know, everything's changed. And so nothing will ever be the same again. So it's what we do with that, how we've learned from that, how we can now grow from that. Do you see what I mean? Because when we're that best version of ourselves, like everybody else benefits, you know, our friends, our family, our colleagues, you know, everybody benefits from us being the best version of ourselves. And ultimately we do as well because we aspire to greater things. And that's what's important is that we just appreciate that we are work in progress as well, that, like I said about the comparing, as long as we're just comparing ourselves to who we were yesterday, knowing we're doing more today than we did yesterday, that's what's important. Mm -hmm. And when we put our head on the pillow at the end of every night, just asking ourselves, you know, have we done our best today? And if we have, great. What have you done? Maintain that, build on it, grow from it. But if we haven't, then why not? Because it's not like the goal changes, but or the destination changes, but the route that we take to get there might. You know, there might have been a diversion, there might have been something in the way, but we can go around it because there's always a way. We just need to work out what that way is, you know? So that's where, again, coming back to Anthony DeMello, like what he talks about, that that deeper love that comes from, that springs from this awareness that we have to know that there is a way. We just, you know, have to trust the process, keep the faith and know that one day everything will all make sense. Yeah. And for you, I'm hearing it now does just like for me. So it's like we have this innate kind of sense of self, this, you know, this, this, this ability to be well, but it's like we've arrived there through different kind of um, through through different routes. But it's not like that's not important how we got there. What important? What's important is that we are here. You know, just like when you might cook a chicken, for example, it's just important that it's cooked. It doesn't matter how it's seasoned or flavored. Yeah. It just matters that it's cooked. And what what matters every day is that we just do what we have to do to maintain our abstinence. Yeah. So it's lovely to hear. A little bit more about your journey so can i ask you as well like how long have you been abstinent um i have been abstinent 10 years um wow. yeah i was i was 10 years on the 2nd of march um wow. and wow. Uh, yeah i like in in typical i don't know compulsive fashion i marked 10 years and i decided to book a trip to everest base camp and I don't know, I don't know why. And I, I kind of, I, I went into a bit of financial insecurity after it as well. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'll be grand. But um, yeah, man. And you, and you know what? Like, I, 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 what I love, what I love, what I know now is that I know a lot less than I did when I first got sober. Because when I first got sober, I knew it all. And that was my problem. That's why I, <laughs> that's why I couldn't stay sober. Yeah. And then I re now as time goes on, I know, I know, I know now, I know less and less and less. And the funny thing was when it got like I used to go in and I'd be telling like guys that were like 10, 20, 30 years sober, how they how they're doing it wrong. And this is the right way to do it. And they have it all wrong. You know, I have I know all the answers. And, you know, and, and they entertain. They're like, oh, yeah, cool, man. Just just like don't don't just don't drink and keep coming back. And, uh, you know, it's as simple as that, like, you know, and uh and then slowly as time went on, I, I kind of realized that, um, you know, sobriety isn't about, like, you don't get sobriety, you, you maintain it. 
you know it's not it's like last week's uh, shower won't keep you clean today and it's about what I can do today to I suppose improve my 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 mental health my spiritual health my physical health my emotional health and all I have is one day you know what I mean so the, the years don't really matter anymore but it's like today it's like don't count the days make, make the days count you know um so yeah like like I said waking up this morning feeling a bit off and you know, we, although I am like 10 years sober, I still get anxious. I still fail. I still make mistakes. You know, hence the name mm. of the podcast is The Sober Mess. You know, it went from like mm. a drunken mess to a sober mess. And, you know, but like that, I, I, I've been taught how to kind of, you know, be present, you know, to meditate. And no matter what's going on, to come back to the, the present moment, you know, um, and not to let like the... That I still have that addict that lives in me, you know, that, 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 that part of me that can, can crave destruction or to sabotage or, you know, uh, the inner critic or whatever you, you'd like to call it. But I, I know I have tools available to me today, uh, to deal with that, you know what I mean? To deal with any adversity that's thrown at me or to deal with any kind of, you know, banana skins or, or things like that in life. So yeah, I'm, I'm and to be honest, man, I think the greatest thing about being uh, sober today is just having peace of mind. You know, you'd swap everything I have just to have peace of mind and to have good health and that my family have good health, man. And I think that's the that's the pinnacle of, of, for my recovery and for my life today is so that I feel good and I feel okay. And that that is why I drank. That is why I done anything. I just wanted to feel okay on the inside, you know? Mm. But that's the thing, though, isn't it? Like, we're not conditioned to feel. We're conditioned to do things to feel better. Mm. And I know that, like, growing up in an Irish household and how it was for my dad growing up, now I know that. I didn't know it at the time when I was a kid what it was like for him. Like, I used to go to Cairo with him. I saw the house where they grew up, and it was tiny and and all the rest of it, and I get that. But I also really, as I got older, understood that the reasons why he's never told me he loves me or never been able to put his arm around me and tell me he's proud of me, never done some of the things that I've wanted my dad to do or some of the things, I've never heard some of the things I've wanted my dad to say to me, but I realised he doesn't know how to. And this is the thing, it's almost like that straitjacket of male masculinity, like we're not taught how to feel, how to how to um, how to be like ourselves. Like I said, we're encouraged to do everything but the thing we need to do to express and in turn we suppress and it's what we do with that or what it does to us, I suppose I should say, physiologically, you know, emotionally, the energy that's contained within the body. Like you mentioned a couple of books there, um, you know, Eckhart Tolle and Anthony DeMello, but also think about Van der Volk, you know, that the mm. body keeps the score because it oh, does. Yes. If we're not expressing, we're suppressing. Mm. And the less we express, the more we suppress. And if that act of suppressing, we're pushing down, hence the low mood that we feel as a result of that. And then we're doing things to feel better rather than sitting with the feeling to feel better. But if we've never been shown how to do something, how do we know how to do it? Yeah. As an adult, we adapt as a child to the environment we're in. But then we react maladaptively as an adult to that space that we're in. And that's where the harm is done and the damage is done. And then we start to do the work on ourselves. Because when we understand the logic of how life works, how our psychological system works, what we get in that moment is how it doesn't. Like it doesn't work to suppress. It doesn't work to not express. It works to share. It works to talk. And that's where we feel lighter as a result of what we do, whether it's running, exercising in the gym or, or creating music or art or whatever. We have to release. We have to express. Now, when this process is explained to us, like I said, like it settles because whoever's telling us this, whoever's teaching us this, like you and your friend in the rooms that you met who introduced you to the books or, you know, the person who helped me to abstain, you know, those words come from a humbling place and it helps to ease and diffuse and remove the sting that we're feeling from life because there's some compassion afforded to us. Our experience is validated. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Right. And then we start to appreciate the words that we're choosing to use and the power of narrative, our self-narrative, the words that we might be choosing to describe our situation or how we are talking about someone else and then how we're feeling as a result of that. 
So it's really important to to own and to feel empowered, um, given our power and to know our power, you know. And quite often we, or I, I say we, you know, but I found myself speaking from I being rather reactive because I thought that my well-being was under attack. Like I thought that I wouldn't be okay if this happened or if somebody said that. But if somebody said something to me, I believed it as much as I thought those words were true. But when I realized that they weren't, I was actually okay. I wasn't lost, damaged or broken. I began to value my worth. Do you see what I mean? Because I understood how my mind worked, how life worked, how it was for my mum and dad growing up, that they were just doing the best with what they knew. They were doing the best with the tools that they had. But they worked up until a point. They worked until they didn't work. They worked until I realized, you know what? I actually can't live like this. I can't parent my kids like how I was parented. So what didn't start with me in terms of this intergenerational way of parenting stopped with me. So I'm not parenting my kids like that. So I know that when my daughters grow up, it's going to be my grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren that are going to reap the benefit of the way I'm thinking and the way I'm living. You know, and this is what's important here. You know, it's our responsibility as a community, you know, as an audience, as the people who are listening to find the way to get to where we would like to be. Because it's got to be better than where we were, I love you know, in, in, in active addiction. So oh. in active recovery, you know, and I use the word recovery in, as more of an umbrella term. It's more about, for me, Colin, it's about recovery of self. You know, it's not about recovering, which is, is exclusive to drugs or alcohol. It's about recovery of self. Getting ourselves to a place where we feel strong, secure and stable whether we are indeed trying to abstain from drugs, alcohol, or a way of behaving, or we've come out of a relationship, or we've lost our job, or been made redundant, or our pets passed away, whatever. It's about just being strong, secure, and stable, and using that wisdom wisely. Mm. You know, really listening to it when it whispers, because that's what it does. Yeah. And um, I guess the other thing that's come into my mind now is that there's no better act of service than the gift of self-service. So how can we listen to ourselves to really serve ourselves? And I guess that's something that I've had to do, like you, in the 10 years that I've been abstinent, is to really listen to myself, to be able to serve myself. And I know that I now hold myself, you know, in high regard more so than I ever have done because I value my sanity more than I value getting high. That's what's important to me. Healing is the new high. I love that. You know? yeah. yeah, that's that's beautiful. Healing healing is the new high, man. That That is it, isn't it? High, high on life. Tom, <laughs> yeah. man... You, you, you come across as someone that has a very profound and interesting story and I'm, I'm dying to hear it. So let us let us in on a bit of, a bit of your journey and how you arrived at, at, at the place you're at now. Uh, bring us, bring um, us right back. Okay, so wasn't expecting that. <laughs> so born in 1975 um, in, in Hammersmith, West London. Um, Jesus the man the, the, the not drinking man you look Benjamin Button you haven't aged a bit <laughs> so yeah um, two older sisters um, so I'm the youngest of three um, parents you know from Kerry Castle Islands um, Curra, um big family in Tralee huge family out there um, been out there a few times and stuff but you know i kind of grew up here in London, born here in London, parents like many kind of Irish, uh, kids of Irish descendant. You know, my parents came over here in their late teens. They're like in their 80s now. Um, so, yeah, um, childhood, probably, you know what? It probably wasn't the best, but it wasn't the worst at the same time. It was just like somewhere in the middle. Um, always felt quite alone, quite detached, never felt... I don't know quite that I fitted in, that I belonged. Like, I don't look Irish, do I? Do you know I don't what know, I mean? I like, don't know. It's hard to say. I think you do. I think you have the Irish look. I look Greek. I look Italian. I look Spanish. I look anything but Irish. Like, okay. you should see my sisters. They are, like, kind of, you know, as Irish people would look. They, they are, like, lighter in colour than me. They, they what I would refer to as their white. Okay. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got like I've got like a bit of a tan. If, okay. If people are, are hearing us, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, Just the, so you get the image. Okay. You know. Um, so I never felt like I belonged. I never felt like I fitted in. I always, I don't know. Part of me always felt like I was adopted. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like never really having any photos or 
even when I did see pictures, I just, I don't know. It's like we were at a wedding recently in July for my cousin's wedding. And there's a photograph of me, my mum, my dad, and my two sisters. Honestly, Colin, I look like their Uber driver. I do not <laughs> look like a member of the family, I'm telling you. Do you know what I mean? It's like, who's this guy? That's our brother. Really? Even when I used to be out with my sisters when I was younger, who's that guy you were with? Their boyfriends used to get jealous. That's my brother. Shut up. That's not your brother. Do you know what I mean? He's too dark to be your brother. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy growing up. You know, I grew up on, um, I grew up on a northwest London council estate called Stonebridge Estate, which... In the 80s, you know, it was probably one of the roughest estates in Europe back then. It was very, very black and white. Um, and, that, and that was cool. Like, but it was tough. You know, there was a lot of it, there was, it was very violent on that estate. You know, I grew up, um, you know, in a kind of I wouldn't say my household was violent. But, you know, my dad, he was like a, a pro dart player on being on that circuit obviously they would be drinking he would come home mum and dad would be arguing i would see a lot of that i grew up with it my sister my middle sister was really quite you know violent towards me we were violent towards each other um i played football a lot as a kid that was my escape you know i played football um friends of mine were going out raving going partying i'm talking like school age now 14 15 i was head down bed training you know disciplined and um, I played football at a serious level. Um, you know, I, I played for, for Brentford. I played for Arsenal. Wow. Um, but one summer, I never got the call back column, you know. And then I was like, F, football. Not interested anymore. I just turned my back on it. I was like, where's the party? Started going out raving. Started smoking weed. Well, back in those days, it was ash. Do you know what I mean? We never had weed in them days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at these parties, like everyone was going out, like to kind of get high and stuff and, and rave. But I just kind of gravitated towards the DJs. I didn't know they were DJs. All I saw was these guys just like spinning these things on a turntable, these records. And I was like a moth to a light. I was like, what is this? So I got into music. That was my thing. And then I started DJing. Um, um, yeah, just kind of my career, my music career kind of evolved from there. I DJed in quite a few countries around the world, um, played on, uh, we have a radio station here in London called Cool FM, which is, which is uh, the, the world's longest running jungle drum and bass station. Wow. Played on there for about 10 years. So I was really immersed in that rave culture. I grew up with it in the late 80s, early 90s. People like Colin Dell, Colin Favor, Jumping Jack Frost, Mickey Finn, you know, um, Colin Dell, like those people, Colin Favor, they were all like, they were all there. And that was who we were part of. We were part of that crew. We were part of that movement growing up. And that for me was like how I got into like, to like drugs and stuff. And it was very recreational. It didn't become problematic until probably, I guess, maybe like in my 20s, you know, it started to get a bit more kind of like a, like an everyday thing, like smoking weed every day. Like alcohol wasn't really my thing. Didn't really drink. But if I didn't have a lot, if I didn't have a drink, I wouldn't have a line. The two kind of went hand in hand. You see what I mean? So, you know, fast forward um, when it was time for me to, to, to think about abstaining, everything had to go. You know, there was no one way or the other. You know, I hit rock bottom maybe four, five, six times before I actually felt like this has got to stop, enough is enough. Um, you know, there's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of panic attacks. It really started to affect my mental health. And that's when I really started to value my sanity more than I valued getting high. And, um, you know, at that point, I was in what I now know to be a very codependent relationship, a very toxic relationship for about five and a half years, my second long relationship. And when I came out of that, I had loads of questions. Like, what is, like, dopamine? What is, like, recovery? Because I'd stopped, like, about, you know, two years before this relationship ended. But I had no coping strategies. I didn't know what was what. I went into recovery backwards, if you think about it. So um, being a lover of learning and being curious about life, like, I started Googling what is this thing called BDNF, like, brain-derived neurotropic factor. It's a growth hormone. And I started Googling, as I said, dopamine, recovery, neurotransmitters, and all the rest of it. And like I said, being a lover of learning, I found myself like, inquiring to do a master's in addiction and psychology um, and counselling. And that's where my kind of journey, that was where my recovery began. Mm. And um, I was teaching at the time. Like I was, I'd been a teacher for like about 17, 18 years. 
But I knew there was more that I could do for myself. I knew there was more I could do to help young people beyond the classroom. And um, yeah, long story short, I ended up doing a master's in addiction mm -hmm. psychology. And while I was there, I had to do a placement. So I wanted to do one year private sector, one year public sector. So I spent a year working in the Priory, North London. And when I'm in that room, when I'm in that group, because you're not allowed to talk for about three months, you've got to just listen and, 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 and observe. And I was around some really unwell people and I actually started to think to myself, I'm actually okay. I've never had anybody to kind of contrast experiences with. And given what my ex at the time was asserting I was, you know, bipolar, autistic and having Asperger's and being mentally unwell and not fit to look after my kid, you know, it really, it really hit me. So I had to go about proving my, my kind of sanity. I had to go about proving my well-being and that master's in addiction and psychology really changed my life. That's where I understood my own psychology and I understood the psychology of addiction and why people have a certain propensity to become addicted. And I'm aware of my adverse childhood experiences and how I was probably at much higher a risk to experience addictive and compulsive behaviours as a result of those experiences, as a result of those adaptations. But what I learned to do was to do the work on myself, to be, you know, myself. And um, yeah, that's when I knew that, you know, working as a therapist like, was what I wanted to do. This was like my way to progress my teaching career. So I did. I had a five year plan then to kind of like transition from the classroom into the therapy room. And that's what I did. And then um, passed my master's, qualified, my dissertation got published. Um, and it's out there now on Google Scholar. It's got about 21 citations, wow. which is amazing because... The way I see it, I'm a kid from a from a Stonebridge council estate. But what I've done is I've wrote about what I knew, parenting, cannabis, and thought. And I put it all together and I produced the paper and it was the first of its kind in the world. And I didn't know that. And my supervisor at the time was literally like so excited. He was playing the Rocky music in the classroom because he was so like elated with what I was coming to him with. That unbeknown to me at the time, it was you know, I, I wasn't aware of what I was writing. It was just literally what was in me that I knew needed to come out. And then since then, I've wrote other things. There's um, like you're into fitness, you're an athlete. I, I wrote a piece on exercise addiction, which is now the book uh, that I wrote the chapter in. It's literally Jesus. on its way to me. It's, we can relate to that. It's, it's on the shelves. So we can send a link to that if you want to if you want to talk about that. But my journey has been one which is just kind of, you know, progressed and got better and got better and better and better. And now I've got my private practice. Uh, my life story that I wrote for somebody recently was entitled From Harleston to Harley Street, because that's the kind of the contrast of where I came from to where I'm at now. And while I'm, while I'm humbled by how far I've come, you know, and what I have done, I'm fascinated by what there is still yet to discover, because I truly believe that the best is yet to come. Right. So I guess in a nutshell, that's kind of where I was born, a little bit about my childhood, how I kind of got into, you know, drugs and alcohol and things like that and raving and the music from teaching into therapy. And, you know, this is where I am now, like two amazing daughters, uh, a, a flourishing private practice. I've got a, an amazing team of therapists, you know, that we all work together um, to be able to serve our community. Um, you know, we run groups we do one-to-ones, we do workshops, um, you know, we work, I still work heavily with young people because it's all about prevention. You know, if we can prevent young people's emotional fires from starting or at least giving them the awareness to know that there's a potential fire that could start based on what they're thinking this person is saying and how it's impacting them, you know, really getting them to take a step back and realize it's not about what the person is saying because they can't put a feeling in you. Your thinking is creating your experience. So what is it about your thinking that's buying into what they're saying? Because if they're saying it about you, it's only as true uh, it, as much as you believe it to be true. So if you're like, no, that doesn't bother me, that's not me, then you're going to distance yourself from it. And that's what's going to determine the strength of our health and the quality of our relationships is what we detach from. And quite often it's other people's words. Their opinion is not our reality. And that's what I've had to learn to appreciate the fact that someone else's opinion is not my reality. I know my truth. And if you know me, you know that. And if you don't, then that's cool. That's cool. That's all right. Do you know what I mean? I don't need, like we talked about um, instant gratification earlier. I don't need that external validation for me to know I'm good. I've, I don't need anything to have everything. It's here already inside me. That peace of mind you spoke about, that love, that wisdom, 
you know, that gratitude is here. It's right there already. I can't order that from Amazon. I can't go and buy it from Tesco. It's here. And when we take that journey inward, like to that in the most cave of ours that we all have, it's the most profound journey we'll ever take because nothing will ever be the same again. So that's where for me, Colin, you know, whilst again, like I'm fascinated by how, or should I say I'm humbled by how far I've come, but I'm fascinated by what there is still yet to discover because I truly believe the best is yet to come. And that's what I would say to everybody listening. Just, you know, keep the faith, trust the process and just know that one day everything will make sense. So yeah, it's kind of it. Wow, that's uh, that's powerful, man. That is, yeah. There, there's so much stuff that came up there. Uh, just as you were sharing, as like a meerkat, <laughs> just nodding, going, "Yep, yep, yep." I can get, identify with that. I can resonate with that. You know that uh, that inspires me. Yeah, man. It was it was beautiful and like, yeah, like like through through that struggle, like you said, like. At the start, you know, you felt different. You felt like you were like different from your family or different from your friends. Mm. You just didn't feel like you fitted in. Like, do you feel today that that was like the reason you give back so much and you healed so much? Is that you were different for a reason? That you were you were like you were meant you were meant for different things. And I think was that the reason you felt so uncomfortable in yourself because you weren't living to your true uh, your true self or your true potential. It wasn't that I felt different from my friends. I felt different from my family, certainly. Like my big sister, she's like my mum, if I'm being honest with you. My big sister, she's cool. Got so much love for Caroline. She's cool. Um, but I just, I, just, I just never felt loved. That's mm. the thing. That's my, like when I've done my work on my inner child and I've done my trauma work as part of my training and even now, like studying trauma, um, my, my, my inner pain is, is abandonment and rejection. You know, like putting it out there and being really, really vulnerable here. That's my that's my wound as well. I never felt I didn't I didn't feel loved. Do you see what I mean? Which is why I probably craved that in the relationships that I've been in. But I've really had to check myself to know what to know that you know what the love I need for myself I've got in myself. Like I'm not going to find it out there. Like you talked about having the house and the car and this that and the other. Like we could have all of that and still not be okay because we're looking in the, the wrong direction for the very thing we need. The minute we look like, put it this way, um, there's a guy called Sidney Banks, I don't know if you've heard of him, and he uncovered something called the three principles. And the three principles is basically mind, consciousness, and thought. Have you heard of that concept? No. So there might be people out there listening in your community that have heard of it and know what I'm talking about right now. But just like you kind of like, you know, if I'm correct in saying your route to abstinence was through AA, through the rooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my the, the one of the routes that I was privileged to on my journey to abstinence was the three principles. And what Sidney Banks, the guy who uncovered it, talks about is the fact that the best hiding place is right there underneath our nose, but it's yet it's the last place we'll look. You know? Okay. So that that's what it was like for me, it was just realizing the fact that the love that I was so desperate to feel, like I could give that to myself. I wouldn't find it out there in anyone or anything. Like it was already there. And um, the minute I saw that was like, boom. And what was the first step in doing that? What was the realization and how, how did you embark on that? On knowing that I had the love inside me. Hmm. Um, I suppose it was when I split up with like, like the mother of my youngest. So I've had two relationships. And that's where my, my beautiful daughters come from. I've had one from each. So I suppose with the mother of my youngest, it was really, you know, when, like I said, she was um, making lots of, uh, I suppose there would, there would have been assertions from her perspective that I had this diagnosis or that kind of condition or whatever. And I was like, that's, no, I don't. I don't have that. I'm not autistic. I don't have ADHD. I'm not like you know, um, anything that you say I am. Like, I know I'm all right. I know I'm all right. I had that belief in myself. Like, And I kept telling myself, like, I'm all right. I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Because all throughout my life, like, I've always done things that are very, like, um, like I don't know, how can I put it? Like, solo. I've always flown solo. Like, when I was at school, I was the only person from my class to get picked for the school football team for, like, all five years. 
And then like when I was DJing, I was doing that on my own. Do you see what I mean? When I was playing for Brentford and I was playing for Arsenal, I was the only person to get picked from the team that I was with at the time to go forward and, and play. So I've always done things on my own. So I've always kind of deep down thought, well, if these people are seeing something in me, then like I must be all right. Do you see what I mean? I must be able to like kickball or I must have a certain set of skills or talent like musically to be able to be selected to play at these raves or to represent this radio station or to play for that team. So I guess subconsciously, I've always kind of known that I'm okay, mm. but I've just never really kind of felt it on a conscious level, given what it was like for me growing up and being quite, I don't know, just having that tempestuous relationship with my, with my middle sister like I've, and, and, and being a different colour to my family. I never really feel like I fitted in anywhere. I've always felt consciously like different. But yeah, to your point, it was when I split up with, with uh, the mother of my youngest that, and I realized, you know what, I'm actually all right. And that's what I set about, you know, demonstrating my sanity. Like I had to, mm -hmm. to preserve the relationship I had with my children because she wasn't letting me see my kid, you know. Yeah. So I had to go and see a psychiatrist and have a psychiatric evaluation. And even then, like the psychiatrist tells me, Tom, you're just really stressed. You have been through so much that it's no wonder you're experiencing the things that you are he told me about cortisol he told me about serotonin i'm like what is that and again this is what kind of led me to you know research neurology and, and the brain and bdnf and everything else that i've spoke about so um it was quite a journey but then when you're accused of lying to the psychiatrist it's like well what's actually going on for you then that you're not believing like how can you dupe and fool a psychiatrist so i had to have another one another psychiatric assessment because I wasn't happy with what, you know, and the way I was being treated, told, you know, when, for how long, and, you know, I can see my, that doesn't work for me. So I ended up um, taking, like, her to court. And, um, yeah, I had to do that, you know, to preserve the relationship uh, that I have with my children and equally to, to validate myself, to know that I'm okay. You know, it's tough, but these are the things we have to do in recovery, you know, of ourselves to be ourselves because there's people out there that don't want us to recover. There's people out there that just want us to fail and not be the people we are today. Even the part of the brain that doesn't want us to change. There's always part of us that wants us to stay the same. But if we're always going to do what we've always done, that's what we're going to get. Mm. Which for a lot of people is nothing and nowhere. But I know that there's more out there for me. Do you see what I mean? And that's why it's great to speak to someone such as yourself because you get it. You're on a similar vibe. You're on a similar journey. So it's just knowing that we've got that in there. So I'm grateful for the relationship I've had and how she was because it's enabled me to dig deep within me to find me. You know, so there's just there's a lot of gratitude there. there really the... No bitterness, no bitterness whatsoever. I'm like, thank you, because you've helped me to be where I am. You know, that's beautiful, man. It's it's really powerful and. Um... Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think uh, Sigmund Freud is that quote, you know, it's uh, it's in retrospect that we see that the most difficult periods of our life are actually the most beautiful. And the, the, like, you don't find the light in the light, you find the light in the dark, you know, and just hearing that, though, you do, like, like that, like, when I was saying earlier, when I was sitting in the apartment and had all the nice things and, and all these friends that didn't know me and all these nice items that I didn't need and, you know, and, and still feeling incredibly lonely and disconnected on the inside. And uh, mm. I think it was then that I realised I, fa I found I found a light, you know. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, being able to kind of take steps to go, to go beyond healing rather than stuck on the quick hit gratification kind of hamster wheel that, that I was on, like, mm. you know, and... Um, yeah, so it is, it is the, you know, it is the rock bottoms that we find out more about ourselves and our character than we do at, at, the, at the mountaintops, like, um, mm. yeah, and that's beautiful. And then kind of when you can sit down and, 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 and hear, like, as you were saying there, being able to hear people that have also had a similar experience and, and get that sense of connection. And I think that's the beauty of, of, of life as well, to be able to just feel understood and, and to feel understood. To feel like some, someone just gets you, like, you know. Um, 
And like, what what advice would you give now? Say someone that's in the middle of a struggle, be it with their mental health or with addiction or just the the the, the difficulties of life. What advice would you give them upon, uh, I suppose, entering up uh, on a, a healing or recovery journey? What's a couple of what what are the, like some steps you'd offer them? Honestly, I would just talk to someone. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but just talk to someone. Find someone that you trust. You know, find somebody who you know has kind of been there. You know, someone who's... Someone who you can relate to. You know, someone who you can just go to and know that, you know what, they've been there, they've done that, they're going to get it. It's like just, you know, a friend of mine, a really lovely, amazing friend of mine, Pete Cohen, is, um, you know, his partner's quite poorly. And when, when she was ill before, the doctor said to him, find somebody, you know, who's got the same kind of condition as you and ask them how they got better. And that's that's what it's about. It's about finding somebody ahead of you who's kind of been there, who's experienced this shade of the same, go and talk to them because they're going to understand you, they're going to hear you and I guess that's all we ever want in life Colin, we just want to be heard, we want to be held, you know, and this is the healing effect of love, when we love ourselves enough to care about ourselves, enough to listen to ourselves we're going to go and talk to somebody so we can be heard mm. and that is the healing effect of love, it really is, just really take time out for yourself to be yourself yeah that's beautiful man, yeah yeah, it is that. It's like, it's, it's, it's only like for me, like I found that most hardest thing ever is, is to reach out and ask for help. You know, it's one of the most difficult things to do. You know, it's going against all my condition and all my beliefs, going against my ego, letting the guard down and asking someone for help, you know. And in Ireland, we have this great Irish word that just expresses how we feel. And it's just, I'm grand. You know, how are you on grand? And, I remember I'm being pale white, veins popping in my head, eyes bulging, just in a really bad way. And everyone used to be really concerned. I'm going, grand, yeah. How are you? Would say, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm grand. And and that's what it was, man. I was just, I didn't, I was so embarrassed. I don't know what it was, but I was so afraid to help, to reach out for help. And I suppose when I got desperate enough, you know, um, that's when I did. And it, it, like, the heaviest weight I've ever picked up in my life was the phone mm. and just uh, saying I, I, I need help and you know after that man that's that's when my journey to recovery started when I was able to just ask someone and say look I can't do it on my own I need, I need help mm. um, Tom it's, it's been an absolute powerful podcast man and, and I'd sit here and I'd talk to you all day but I just want to finish off with a couple of quick hit questions if that's yeah. okay Um. Actually, I actually have a poem here that I wanted to read out at the start, but I completely <laughs> forgot. But it's a it's a poem. It's a poem. Uh, the art <laughs> of hitting them with me today, isn't yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually wanted to read this poem to you at the start and to see could you relate to it. You probably heard it. It's a it's a poem I found in a Buddhist book called uh, the uh, the art of living and dying. And uh, there's actually no authors, as far as I can see. Oh, sorry, Portia Nelson wrote this poem. It's a poem about addiction. Okay. So it's the first, the first verse. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am hopeless. Mm. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Mm. I walk down the same street. There is a hole in the mm. sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe mm. I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Mm. I walk down the same street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. I walk down the same street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. I walk down another street. I just, I love that poem, man, because it can resonate mm-hmm. it so much that we... It's like we have to touch the stove a few times before we realise yeah. this is causing me pain. I need to do something different. And then when you mm-hmm. like say you take accountability and say, "Look, I, I, it's my fault," you know, I, I, and that's when we get out of it immediately and we make a decision to walk down a different street. That's what I mean, and that's the choice that we have, and we have a choice whether to talk, whether to not, 
whether to speak, whether to remain silent. And I love that poem. One of my my dear friend, my one of my best friends in the whole world, man, Louise, Louise Phillips. Big love to you, Louise. You know, she she loves that poem as well. And um yeah, I just this is what I'm saying about connecting with people. You know, we're we to your point that you were saying earlier, you know, we're we're in we're we're not conditioned to feel. You know, we are conditioned to attach to something outside of us as the source of our well-being. But when we realize it's all there already, it's just like it changes. You know, mm. when we get how something works, what we realize is how it doesn't. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just I guess as we're bringing things to a close, I would just encourage people to be a champion, you know, be a champion of you. That's what it's about, you know, each and every day. Know what you're living for, know what you're doing, know who you're becoming yeah. as a result of what you're doing. You know, so yeah, yeah. it's been a pleasure, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. So quick question. What's the greatest advice you've ever gotten? Keep it simple. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? On the house, on the hills in Ibiza. Uh, in Ibiza? Wow. Mm, it's like my second home. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love that. What What would you, advice would you go back and give to your 15-year-old self? <laughs> oh, this is quick fun. I think there's somebody who's like, don't fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But perfection, you know? I want perfection here. Well, excellence. I'm not. A, I'm not a love. I'm not a believer in perfection. I, I think it's perfect. It's all about being perfectly imperfect. Let's just strive for excellence in everything we do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Roy, Tom, it's been absolutely beautiful talking to you. Have you any plans to come over and uh, visit your uh, visit Kerry? Well, you know what? It's. Um, my auntie, she lives in Clare. It's her 90th birthday in April, at the end of April. Okay. Um, so I might, uh, my, my, my dad and my sister and my cousin are all driving over. Um, but I might pop over and, and surprise her, yeah. So yeah. if I am, man, I'm going to give you a call for man, sure. G- give me a buzz. And, yeah, for sure. Give me a buzz and we can get maybe get a seat up here in Dublin. And uh, it'd be great to link up, man. Have, have the chats. No, it would. It would, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah, for sure. Okay, beautiful. Okay, Tom, I'll leave it at that, brother, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, great. See you soon.